Good morning and welcome to the second episode of our Contentious Regulatory Crime and Competition CRCC Spotlights podcast. This is the second episode and you've got me, Helen Suter from Crime, David Trapp from Competition and Tom Makin from Contentious Regulatory, again the dream team back together. I'm in the chair, the seat of power, so I'm going to kick us off. Um, this episode we're going to look at the early stages of internal investigations. We're calling this one, Where Do We Start?, so what we want to look at is how the issues come to light, what sort of considerations are engaged and what are the sort of biggest pitfalls to avoid, particularly in terms of self-reporting. So kicking us off, Tom, how issues come to light? What are the most common ways that you've seen concerns or allegations raised on the contentious reg side? Well, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you guys in your practice areas, but we see issues arise in heaps and heaps of ways. So... For example, there might be a system failure or a product failure. So, for example, if a fund fails or an IT system goes down, um, of course, whistleblows are an increasingly fertile ground for issues to arise. And they they can either be whistleblows to a regulator or perhaps internally at the firm in which on investigation uncover a notifiable matter. Yeah. Yeah, no, Tom. I mean, obviously, whistleblowers are ones that we see from a competition perspective um, frequently. That's obviously a, a common source um, from a competition perspective as well. I would always just flag that um, whistleblowers can come in, in an anonymous format, uh, but whether they do or not quite often can have an impact on how much information the CMA is actually able to get in the first instance and how easy it is to, for them to get the investigation off the ground. So how that whistleblow comes in also has an impact as well. And I think all of our practices will have over the past few years be impacted quite heavily by market trigger events. So um, those can either create or reveal issues, I suppose, um, particularly you see that where something happens on the macro level. So I'm thinking sort of political shifts like Brexit, pandemics, as we've seen in the last year and financial. Um, and usually that's because um, using that great Warren Buffett phrase, the tide goes out. Um, either from a trading or a systems and controls perspective and then I suppose regulators can see who's not wearing any trunks. I quite like that the enforcement sort of lifeguards in this scenario. Yeah, I agree with that from, from the criminal perspective as well I would say in the wake of sort of renewed focus from a political perspective on the so-called professional enablers like banks and professional such We've seen a heavy focus on AML controls on the crime side in the last few years, and lots of banks have come under fire for this as well. I've seen lots of hefty fines in the uh, particularly Commerce Bank this year, for example. David, yeah, com- on the competition yeah side. well, conversely, you've got you've got voluntary approaches by the parties, um, and these could come around through as a result of an internal compliance review or function that spotted something internally, or um, and. When, when they do find something like that, they usually come in the form of a leniency application. Um, and obviously, um, they can be triggered by that internal review, but also a, a leniency application can be triggered by, say, uh, an awkward ex- exchange between two, two competitors or an employee and his counterpart. And at that point, that whole leniency process kind of takes a different um, intensity because at that point, you know that there are other players in the game that might be spotting an issue, whereas something that's come, that's come through a compliance review is a little bit more under the radar still. There's nothing to give away that there are others in the game. Mm, I guess for us, what we see on compliance side or internal in audit reviews, for example, is the converse where, you, as you say, an issue is uncovered, um, but it's been uncovered in a non contentious context so then you have all the difficulties around non-privileged investigations to deal with 
Um, but those are really tricky issues I think we're going to deal with on a special privilege session early on in our series. Um, Tom, um, I mean, is it always something, you know, big bang, either external interest or, you know, big internal issue uncovered as part of a, a review? No, so we're, we're often trying to get across to our clients that it, lots and lots of cases don't arise from that, as you said, big bang event, but they're actually caused by a bit of a drip drip erosion of uh, the FCA's confidence that the firm is on top of its regulatory, regulatory obligations or perhaps just a sense that the F- that the firm doesn't get it on an issue. So you see, for example, a lot of um, enforcement cases come out of thematic reviews, uh, section 166 reviews, where the FCA's sort of, I suppose, lifted the lid on a firm's operations and the firm hasn't been able to clearly articulate what it does and how that meets the relevant requirements. David, I don't know if the competition must be similar. Yeah, so on your on your thematic reviews point, I guess, um, you know, one thing to flag from a competition perspective is the significance of market studies and investigations, um, essentially where they see something in a market that isn't working correctly. They undertake a holistic market-wide study. Um, and essentially that, that then forms, so they can have remedies to remedy the market there and then but it also gives them a huge base of knowledge for future enforcement action so from there there on in you are dealing with a a well-educated regular in that regulator in that space uh, and we've seen that on numerous occasions and of course that that can happen on a sort of a a multi-jurisdictional basis and we do see in all of our practice areas regulators work with each other as as part of broader global investigations and we've, we've seen that with LIBOR and FX coming out of the financial crisis and more recently with the one MBD case so it's not inconceivable and it, it happens quite often that a matter arises in one jurisdiction and then finds its way to regulators around the world. Yeah we definitely see that in the criminal sphere as well I think what is going to be interesting going forward in the next few years is how mutual legal assistance MLA and other sort of diplomatic relations that enable cross-border investigations might evolve um, in dealing with these issues post-Brexit. Clearly, the UK is going to need to maintain cooperation despite its, should we say, bullish negotiating stance um, in the midst of what's what's going on at the moment. Yeah, clearly, clearly relevant for competition as well. Um, the CMA has traditionally enjoyed a very good relationship with the international and European competition networks. Um, and in my view, this isn't really going to change. For me, it's more of a work allocation point, sort of, you know, the extent of piggybacking on between them and, you know, versus parallel proceedings. That's that's the real key area. Um, it's, it's just from the competition perspective, maybe worth just saying, let's, let's not forget the um, FCA has hit its competition powers, Tom. Um, and there is that duty to self-report a competition um, infringement under principle 11. Um, that it requires firms to deal with regulators in an open and cooperative way. And I see, you know, see that in training um, in terms of market abuse that, uh, you know, to flag that competition aspect as well. And there is that link between the two there in terms of reporting. Yeah, I think in terms of self-reporting, we're going to come back onto that in a second. Um, the time when it can get really interesting is when you have um, known information out there, as it were, from, for example, either... Um, ASAR or things like the Panama Papers, for example. Um, so, I don't know, Tom, do you think there are any potential for regulatory cases coming out of the FinCEN file links? Yeah, well, it, it obviously de- depends on the issue, but absolutely that's one way that 
sort of contentious regulatory matters can arise. Taking taking the Panama Papers as an example, since you mentioned it, that was um, of real interest to the FCA. And I think um, freedom of information request results show that the FCA wrote to 64 firms asking for them to review their records for links to Mossack Fonseca. Obviously, it's one thing the FCA asking questions, but whether anything ultimately comes out of that um, is, of course, another issue entirely. Yeah, so it sounds like for you and contentious reg at this stage, it's been, as you say, more of that focus asking questions. For us, we've seen some huge cases come out of the Panama Papers, Unoil in particular. Um, so those sort of investigative journalist pieces, um, you know, can give rise to big enforcement action. So we're going to look ahead and, and see whether the FinCEN file leaks might give rise to further criminal investigations. But I guess by nature of those files, as opposed to panel papers, they were actually already on enforcement's radar. The SAR's gone in. Um, so enforcement are already aware of the particular piece of information, or should be at least. But I guess that's the point, isn't it? A SAR that has been filed doesn't necessarily equate to a SAR that's been picked up by the SFO under the information sharing powers. Yeah, it's lots, lots to think about there anyway. Maybe we'll just watch that one as it develops. Tom, we've talked a little bit about notifications already. Um, there are some kind of quite complicated dynamics that can come from reporting, self-reporting to the SFO. What about the FCA side? If I become aware of an issue that's in the FCA's jurisdiction, should I investigate it first or is the FCA going to want to do that? Yeah, well, uh, I think partly this is going to depend on uh, the issues being investigate, investigated. So there are circumstances where the FCA may wish to speak, for example, speak to individuals first, where there's maybe um, potential for a, a criminal aspect to the investigation or there's a market abuse angle. Um, absent that kind of context, the ordinary course would be for the firm to first investigate the issue, at least at a high level, to determine whether there's there's anything that might need to be reported. Um, but also, you know, you want to be going to the FCA with a meaningful update and a, and a plan of action. So you, you do need to sort of understand what's happened first. Um, one thing that you might consider and which is um, anticipated by the FCA handbook in, in SOP 15 is giving your usual FCA supervision contact an initial telephone notification with a written follow-up communication once you've got more information or the positions settled. And that's a pretty well-trodden path. Um, but deciding whether and when to notify is kind of one of those grey areas where you need to apply your judgment. And um, my informal rule of thumb in my own mind is that if you're sitting on some information that you probably in an ideal world wouldn't want to hand over you should you should probably be thinking quite carefully about um your notification obligations um david what's the position in respect to the competition authorities i know that vis-a-vis -vis the european commission there's a a quite generous leniency process which makes early notification really advantageous as we as we are all very aware brexit is hurtling up What's the UK Competition Authority's position on early notification, and is there a kind of a process for that? Yeah, it's it's you know relatively similar to be honest. Um, there's quite big gains to be made by going in with information. Um, in some cases, complete immunity from penalties. Um, I think the the thing from a competition perspective to bear in mind is that need to balance getting in there quickly and get the first mover advantage against all the other players that could be out there trying to do the same thing. 
versus actually being able to try and get enough information for it to be useful to the authority. Um, you, you're only going to get the benefits of a lenient application if you can provide enough information. So obviously there's a balance between collating what you can and getting in there quickly. Um, uh, two, look, two top tips to quickly flag, I think, for, for the listeners. I think you, you've got to, from a compliance policy point of view, and I think this probably goes across each of our groups, uh, first thing is to actually have an internal function policy that is capable of undertaking effective interviews at pretty short notice. Uh, to get make sure you get the right information as quick as you can. And the second thing is also to have a policy, specifically IT, um, that is able to preserve the evidence that is required. Um, from a competition perspective, um, it's a nightmare if, uh, if information goes missing, there are severe consequences. Um, so you really do need to have a, a, a full firm-wide policy that is able to preserve any and all evidence that there could be. Uh, you know, at pretty pretty short notice. I completely agree with that from from the criminal side as well. It's so important to be able to preserve that data as soon as you become aware that there's an issue on the radar, and it's something that actually in practice has always been more tricky than um, you would have hoped. So, definitely something to think about in advance. I mean, on the criminal side, in terms of that sort of self-reporting angle, it's something that's been a topic of great debate. Um, among sort of practitioners on the criminal side in the last few years because the SFO was really looking to sort of strong arm corporates into self-reporting. Um, it was offering, you know, offering the DPAs as a, as a potential route to avoiding prosecution and it was making early self-reporting um, and potentially handing over conduct of the investigation as a whole, a sort of a core tenet of that. Um, it was, you know, pretty invasive, controlling accesses to witnesses. Um, so it was quite a big ask. Um, but I think what companies and, and those of us who've been advising them have seen over the last few years on that is that the self-report can result in, in a world of pain. Um, there can be a lot more information out there much earlier in the public sphere, in the public domain, which of course, can alert any potential civil claimants to possible claims. And we're going to come on to, we're going to do a session on parallel proceedings, aren't we? The sort of concurrent civil competition, potentially regulatory and criminal cases all running at the same time. I think that's episode, I don't know, we've got that coming up anyway. Um, but that's definitely an issue. Um, as I said, loss of control over the investigation itself when and whether you can even interview people to find out, as you've said, Tom, whether you even, even have an issue to begin with. Um, pressure to waive privilege. And again, that's something we're going to come on to in a later episode. Um, creation of potentially disclosable material in these parallel proceedings, like your communications with enforcement, for example, which again can be potentially very damaging in the other context. Um, and, uh, you know, again, if you, if you end up successfully down the road with a DPA, you've got a, a public decision, a statement of facts that the company doesn't contest, which could provide, again, a basis for subsequent civil claims, um, even if no criminality is ultimately really admitted. Um, so realistically, the result of all that is a lot of clients are really, really thinking now whether it's better to actually just get my investigation done, find out what's happened, and only then really think about whether or not to go knocking on the SFO's door and do a self-report. But um, I'm sure we'll get back into some of those tricky issues next week when we have um, all of our uh, enforcement bods on, on the podcast. 
so that's I guess we've all been looking at that just now very much on the company side so thank you all individuals even as well I guess um, thanks very much both Tom and David for sharing your insights on that so as I said we're going to sort of pivot from that into next week turning the tables looking at things from the enforcement side how they get cases in what internal structures and teams look like how they cooperate with one another the inside perspective so we'll all look forward to listening in. It's David's turn in the chair in the power seat for that one. So um, look to. forward to listening in. Yeah. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks um, very much. Cheers. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Bye.